the church of Jesus Christ fights its battles on two fronts. Uh, first, the church of Jesus Christ faces hostility from the outside. And so very recently we saw how Peter and John healed the lame man and the authorities imprisoned and threatened the apostles for healing the lame man and for proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. But we saw something amazing, something so encouraging last week in that that the believers, they responded to the opposition from the outside with prayer. The opposition stirred the believers to fight on their knees in prayer. But this morning we see that Satan does not just attack the church from the outside. We see here how the church fights its battle not only on the front of external hostility, but we see how Satan stirs up corruption within the church. And the church fights this war with church discipline. And so the first thing we see here is how the fellowship of God's people were filled with the Spirit to walk in His steps. Filled with the Spirit to walk in His steps. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, we saw how the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, and as a result, we read, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so this is what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon God's people. There was an influx of about 3,000 believers into the body of Christ, and it created a great practical needs among God's people. And people who had the means, they sold uh, what they could to support uh, those who had need. And now, Last week, our last week's passage ended with chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see what happens as the result of the believers being filled with the Holy Spirit today. Because in verse 32, we read, Those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So do you see what happened both in chapter 2 and chapter 4? In chapter 2, the Spirit of God filled the believers, and as a result, there was a wonderful, amazing kind of a fellowship that formed. And for them, fellowship wasn't just believers spending time together, but fellowship was Believers coming together to meet the needs of one another, to support one another in very practical 
way that was full of sacrificial love. And again in chapter 4, the believers, as they face the opposition, they pray for God's Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Holy Spirit filled them once again. There is this amazing kind of a fellowship where no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so both times, this sacrificial generosity is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see something amazing here, because as the believers cared for the poor with love, God caused the gospel to go forth with power. And so in the very next verse we read, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. So it seems what happened is that the believers' concern for the poor softened the hearts of the unbelievers. And it made them receptive to the gospel. These, uh, these unbelievers, they were shocked. They were thoroughly impressed and moved how these early Christians were so sacrificially, generously, and lovingly support the poor and care for the needy. Their hearts began to melt. You see, and the gospel, the gospel made the believers sensitive to the need of the poor and the believers' compassion toward the poor made the gospel attractive and compelling. And in this passage, we see how Luke gives, he gives us one very specific example, a man named Joseph. And we read, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Yes, it's that Barnabas that Barnabas who will go on to become Paul's colleague and companion in the great missionary work of the gospel. And Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so he, Barnabas, is an example of a believer transformed by the indwelling spirit of Christ. And what I find really interesting, uh, perhaps amusing, is that you notice here how Barnabas, uh, he was also called, his name Barnabas, which uh, means son of encouragement. You know, the Greek word for encouragement is paraklesis, which is a word that is very closely related to the word that is often translated as advocate or comforter. You know how we often call the Holy Spirit the advocate, the comforter. And the word for that is parakletos. Son of encouragement, son of paraklesis. And the Holy Spirit, parakletos. And, it, and I'm not sure if Luke meant to make this point or not, but I just can't help but think how Barnabas' name, even his name is full of the Holy Spirit. And all that to show us that you know, of course, you know that Barnabas is actually one of the main characters in the book of Acts. In his many uh, fruitful labors as, as Paul's companion. And we see not only Paul's 
great zeal for the gospel, but for, uh, also Barnabas's great zeal. And what we begin to see is that both his missionary zeal and his uh, care for the poor are from the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing. You know, isn't this a very embodiment of that earlier passage that we read from Psalm 133? How sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So the body of Christ, the fellowship of God's people, were filled with the Spirit to walk in His steps. Sadly, though, we see something else in this passage because we see a couple filled with Satan to walk in his steps. So if Barnabas is the exemplary and spirit-filled believer, we see, on the other hand, two people who are in every way Barnabas's opposite. And so we read, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, once again, uh, when we looked at the passage in um, Acts chapter 2, when we saw how the believers sold their possessions, we saw that uh, there was no compulsion and the believers were not obligated to sell their possessions in order to support one another. It was an extraordinary set of circumstances, and the Spirit of God powerfully moved some people who had the means that they did not consider their possessions too dear and too precious. But it was a completely free and voluntary offering to the Lord. And so, Already in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the book of Acts, as well as all of the New Testament, we see that the Christians are under no obligation to sell everything that they have. And we see that many Christians throughout the New Testament continue to possess private property with God's blessing. And even here, Peter says uh, to Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Ananias was under no compulsion. He was under no obligation to give up all his possessions. You see, the believers who had the means, they gave willingly to meet specific needs of the moment. And the giving was voluntary, and it was occasional, in other words, to meet specific need of the moment. And the New Testament's uh, attitude and teaching towards giving is really summarized very nicely in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. There, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, as a pastor, I've been asked uh, every now and then, uh, do I, as a New Testament believer, uh, still need to give tithe? You know, and as a good philosopher, my answer is always yes and no. <laughs> um, 
In the Old Testament, tithe, giving one-tenth, was just one part of your offering to the Lord. And it was something that was obligated uh, under the law. And on the one hand, I want to say, um, if God's people gave one-tenth under the law, doesn't the grace of Jesus Christ move your heart even more to give? And so in that sense, I want to say, yes, we probably should. On the other hand, we also recognize that the New Testament never talks about amount as such. As a matter of fact, you know, there is a well-known moment in the Gospels where Jesus sees a poor widow putting in two small copper coins and praises our offering, whereas he sees many rich people putting vast amount of sums, and he... Jesus says that God takes no pleasure in them. So the attitude of the New Testament is never about percentage or about amount. Rather, give what you have the faith to give. Not under compulsion, not under obligation, but what you have decided in your heart and what you can give cheerfully. And the point is, faith gives more cheerfully then law can ever make us to give. And love creates a spirit of generosity, whereas obligation creates a mindset of exactness. You know, the mindset of exactness says, you know, fine, I'll give every penny I am obligated to give, but not a penny more. You know, that's the mindset of obligation and exactness. But faith stirs up cheerful giving. Love creates a spirit of generosity. And I think that we need to recognize that as we come to evaluate what is happening here. Because Ananias and Sapphira were under no obligation. They could have given either the whole or in part without sin. Then what is their fault here? Notice what Peter says. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, first of all, this is very easy to miss. First of all, note that lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter calls in verse 5, you have not lied to man, but to God. And so in almost a passing way, Peter affirms the divinity of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are some people who say that the New Testament does not teach the doctrine of Trinity. It's as if they read the Bible with their eyes closed. The Trinity is everywhere. You know, here, Peter, it's almost a passing comment. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Because the part of the mystery of the Christian faith is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the importance of that is that Peter points out their fault in that in lying to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. That's the problem. Secondly, the Greek verb that is used when Peter says, you, why did you keep back that verb? It means to deprive, and, and it means to misappropriate. And you realize the concepts like 
depriving or misappropriation only becomes relevant if the money is already spoken for. And so the implication seems to be that Ananias and Sapphira, to begin with, they were under no obligation. But they had made a commitment to help a particular need or people in need. And having committed themselves to to support and to come to the aid of those in need, they deceived both God and the people that they had committed to help. And so their decision, their lie, amounted to turning their back on people that they had pledged to help. And so what is happening here is, you know, isn't it funny? The action looks exactly the same. Barnabas sold his field and laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their field and laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. The action looks exactly the same. But the mindset and the heart were completely different. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to be seen as loving. They wanted to be seen as committed. They wanted to be seen as generous and helpful. But in reality, it was all hypocrisy. Now, what happened? Well, Peter tells us, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, Satan, in the last chapter, attempted to destroy the church with outright hostility and opposition. Uh, Make no mistake about it, it was Satan who was behind the authorities' hostility and opposition to the gospel proclamation. It was Satan that imprisoned the apostles. It was Satan that threatened the apostles. But having failed to destroy the church with outright hostility, now Satan attacked the church from within. And that is why Peter rendered his judgment, you have not lied to man, but to God. So the church of Jesus Christ fights external hostility not by taking up arms, not by starting a rebellion. The church fights external hostility with prayer on their knees with their arms lifted up to God in prayer. And the church of Jesus Christ fights internal corruption with church discipline. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And sadly, his wife Sapphira was not with him. And she came in about three hours later, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asks her, so tell me, is this what you sold the land for? And she says, yes, that's exactly how much we got from the land. She colluded with her husband, and she told the same lie. And she, too, paid with her life. You know, some people, when they read this passage, they want to say, God is too severe. This is unfair. And it seems to me that is a complaint and objection that rises out of the heart that is determined. You know, it's no big deal to lie to God. 
It's no big deal to cheat God's people. It's only when we have assumed that it is no big deal to dishonor God, then we can complain. You know, this is just too severe. But not when you understand who God is. And so notice how great fear, after Ananias died, great fear came upon the whole church. And we hear the same thing after Sapphira has died. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So can I put it this way? Faithfulness to Christ means boldness before the hostile world and fear before the holy God. That's what faithfulness to Christ means. On the one hand, there is boldness before the world, but fear before the holy God. We do not shake before men, but we tremble before God with with a deep reverence and with a zeal for his honor. So on the one hand, the fellowship of God's people filled with God's spirit to walk in his steps, but we see two people who were filled with Satan to walk after his steps. And that brings us to a point of reflection to see and to consider what we ought to learn from this passage, what we ought to take away. And we do that by noting what is the church that pleases God? What is the fellowship of God's people that pleases God? And it seems to me there are two things that we can focus on this morning. First, the scripture speaks Scripture speaks too often about God's care for the poor that we can never dismiss it. Whether we read the Old Testament or the New Testament, Scriptures are full of God's concern for the poor that we dare not dismiss what the early believers did here as impetuous, rash, unnecessary action. Now, it is true that the church's primary mission is not the elimination of poverty, and the church's primary mission is not a reformation of society. We need to recognize that, but we also need to recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the believers into compassionate people. And it is true that the gospel lays no obligation on believers to give away everything that they have. And if anyone insists on that, they are also wrong. It is true that God lays no obligation on believers to sell everything they have, to give everything away. But God does call the believers to care. The caring for the poor is not something that believers can dismiss. Now, we can, I think, as sincere believers, have good faith discussions about what may be the best policy as a political body 
to support the poor and care for the poor. And I think sincere Christians can have differences of opinions about that discussion. What we cannot do is to say that the poor don't matter. What we cannot do is to dismiss them because God calls us to care. And seeing as how the Christians care for the poor is one of the things that, that marvelously softened the hearts of the unbelievers and made the gospel both attractive and compelling. You know, perhaps we need to wonder, have we got the balance a little bit wrong? Is it possible that if the world is cynical about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it possible that the world is not seeing the ways in which God's people care for the poor? Now, again, uh, we don't do anything to be seen by the world. And I do believe that Christians, because they love God, and if we listen to the statistics that are available, Christians are far more generous than unbelievers. And I think there are many Christians who do their good work away from prying eyes and praise God. That's exactly right. Nevertheless, the question is worth asking, I think. If the world is not responding to the gospel, is it possible that that Christians are not doing such a great job of caring for the poor? Secondly, this is a moment uh, of thanksgiving in that, thankfully, God does not deal with our sins as immediately and as definitively as he can, the way that he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Can you imagine? Now, by the way, the Lord has every right, and his judgment is fair, righteous, holy and good. And when God judged Ananias and Sapphira's sins immediately and definitively, he did so in righteousness and wisdom. He had every right to do that. But can you imagine if that's the way the Lord deals with us? (laughs) And so this is a moment of thanksgiving for us because The fact that God does not immediately deal with our sins means that he delays his judgment in order to give us time to repent. And so we must never mistake God's patience with apathy. Rather, understand that unless we are watchful, we will all fall prey to Satan's schemes. And so Ananias and Sapphira must serve as warning. Fear God and repent while you have the opportunity. Ananias and Sapphira, they are the people whose hearts were not fully given to God, who kept back from God what they had dedicated to God. You and I, we are God's people, and our lives are not our own. 
and we may truly say, everything that we are, even everything that we have, they are for God's glory. And so do you see, loved ones, that there is something terribly wrong when we keep a part of our heart from God, when we keep a part of our lives from God, when we are in any way reluctant, hesitant to give all that we are to the Lord for His glory. Because that is a sign of a heart that is divided. And so, loved ones, let me urge you. And truth be told, I think that is a problem for each and every one of us. We have parts of our heart, lives, that we withhold from the Lord. Would you fear God? Would you have a deep reverence for Him? Would you have a zeal for His glory and repent while you have the opportunity? And here's the glorious thing. Will Jesus even forgive liars and hypocrites? Yes. The only sinners that Jesus will never forgive are those sinners who never asked to be forgiven. When we come to Jesus with sin, our failures, even our rebellion, when we ask him to cleanse us, he will and he does. And can Jesus set right our life that has been wasted in selfishness? Of course. He will restore. Because Jesus, he gives grace to every sinner who will repent. So let me urge you, loved ones. Would you ask God to fill you with his spirit? that you may walk in his steps. Would you ask God to fill this church with his spirit that we may truly see in this body of Christ the beauty of Psalm 133, how sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions, and we thank you for warning us to be careful in, in how we live. Help us to remember and understand that, that as long as we are your disciples in this world, we are engaged in spiritual battle. And so when we are opposed from hostile forces outside, please make us men and women who pray. And when we uh, face the, the corrupting influence and work of Satan in the church, help us to be a body, help us to be a fellowship that honors you and fears your name. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.